You're listening to Uniquely Beautiful Stories with Heather McInear, a place for you to find encouragement to fully live your uniquely beautiful life. Hello and welcome back to Uniquely Beautiful Stories. I'm your host, Heather McInear, and I'm so glad that you've decided to join us again as we share encouraging stories that God is writing in the lives of women around us. Today, I'm so thrilled that my friend Stacy Getzinger decided to join me and share her uniquely beautiful story. Stacy is from Oklahoma City. She's been married to her hubby Doug for about 25 years. They just celebrated that. So congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> That's a big milestone. Yes. <laughs> They've got two beautiful daughters, Shelby and Riley, and they are now in the empty nesting phase of life because their girls are both in college at Dallas Baptist. That's also where Stacy and Doug went and met each other. So that's pretty fun. Yes. Probably lots of memories when you go visit the girls. Definitely. They, we try not to bring up everything when we're walking around <laughs> with them, but... I love that. Stacey also has a blog. It's called speakoutloud.me. And the tagline for her blog is speaking words of hope out of the darkness of anorexia, depression, and self-harm. From her blog and her journey and her walk, she has now written a book, which is really exciting. And we want to talk about her book today. It's recently been released, and it's called You Are Worth Saving. Letters of Hope from a Desperate Heart. Her book is available at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. And she's also got a Facebook page. So we've got all sorts of stuff to talk about today. And also, it's just a, a really fun and neat way that the Lord works because we, we set this interview up weeks ago. Then this week is National Eating Disorder Awareness Week. So she's had all kinds of opportunities to share with young women across our state and just about her journey. So I believe this is exactly the time that God wanted us to hear your story as well. Thank you. I, I think it's perfect perfect timing. I agree. So <laughs> I am too. I know you've got so much to share with us today. I would love it if you just go back a little bit as far as you'd like to and just let us know maybe the beginning, the first symptom in your life. Go back to that and let us know a little bit about sure. how that looked. I grew up in a minister's home and uh, my family was always in front of a lot of people and the emphasis was both spoken and non-spoken to be pretty skinny and to look great on the outside a lot. And I know that's kind of a common theme, or it used to be anyway, in the ministry. I think we've come a long way from that in most households. But it was when my parents, after 25 years of marriage, got divorced. So this mm. anniversary has, for Doug and I has brought back a lot of memories mm. for me. We were living in California at the time, and my parents had had a very difficult marriage. Um, and uh, my sister Tracy and I had really not been surprised when they got to the point where they were separated and then going to get divorced. Mm -hmm. At that time, I was 18, and we had moved five times in high school, oh, three wow. times my senior year. And so I was kind of done. I was really tired. And um, for an 18-year-old to say they're really tired is kind of discouraging. And uh, that's when I experienced a little bit of depression. And that's also when I was about to go to college. And when I got to college, I just felt kind of lost, discombobulated, kind of just all over the place. My family was all split up in different states. And I had failed to fix it. And I was just really feeling down. And so when... I started college, I can remember having a meal plan that let us eat two to three times a day. 
And when I was growing up, we didn't always have a lot of food. Mm. Sometimes in the ministry, we just had smaller churches. Sometimes we had big churches and there was abundance. But I just knew that food was something that needed to be deserved. When I was in college and we got to eat a little bit more frequently and eat a little bit more, I noticed that my clothes stopped fitting as well as they had. And I'd always been an avid tennis player for 11 years. I competed in tennis. I wasn't doing that anymore in college. I had um, given up two scholarships to play tennis at state schools in order to take care of my mom after the divorce happened. And I began to isolate a little bit more the more I realized my clothes weren't fitting. I didn't have any clothes to replace those clothes. And I was embarrassed and I didn't know really what was going on with my body because that had never happened. Um, being um, Being so much into athletics and everything, I'd never experienced that before. I kept thinking in the back of my mind, maybe if I just get a little bit smaller, that will fix my family. Now that I say that, it doesn't make sense to me. But at 18 years old and being in the throes of a divorce made total sense to me. I was just really scared that even though they, my parents had had such a turbulent marriage, I was scared they wouldn't get back because together, because that was my normal. When my clothes stopped fitting better, I began to isolate anymore, and I began to drink um, diet drinks in my room and just eat crackers and uh, stopped going to the cafeteria with friends. My friends noticed that I was isolating more and more because I am an extrovert. I was very active in school, but yet on the inside, I was really hurting. My desire to eat with people was diminishing. And so with that, my outgoing self was kind of diminishing. And so um, in the midst of all of this, I met my boyfriend, Doug. Then we ended up, of course, getting married right after we graduated. And I started teaching high school. I taught reading English and Spanish in high school inner city. And I absolutely loved it. And at one year into our marriage, I was the 0.01% that got pregnant on the phone. And <laughs> oh, wow. having anorexia, you want to, to make sure that you all your nutrition is in order, even though that goes against everything. And my nutrition was not in order. And so um, I was involved in a car accident with when I was pregnant with him about five months along. But the real cause of death was the nutrition mm-hmm. for the baby. He wasn't as big as a five-month pregnancy mm-hmm. baby should be, though. And um, just noticing laps and heartbeat and everything. And he just was not growing like he should. But the pregnancy was viable till two weeks after the car accident. They did wow. say that it was due to lack of nutrition. That was heartbreaking for us. But that's those are the earliest memories. So when, you know, the times in college, the isolating, eating less, starting to kind of watch your food intake, mm-hmm. and then obviously with the baby, mm-hmm. hearing those words, lack of nutrition, mm-hmm. are these things that are kind of a warning bell to you? Or were you able to just rationalize the the feelings? Because I know with, with um, an eating disorder, it's a mental illness too. Mm-hmm. And so your brain is tricking you. So yes. what, what was going on in you when you're seeing physical signs of mm-hmm. getting thinner and then also the loss of this baby? What was that battle kind of like in your mind? Well, unfortunately, I was so steeped in it. And the the, mis- the loss of the baby, the miscarriage, really just catapulted me into more depression. And um, I kept thinking, maybe some of the sadness will go away if I just lose. And so even though I hadn't gained any weight, with my pregnancy. Matter of fact, I was continuing to either stabilize or lose a little bit 
I just thought this is what will fix it is if I lose a little bit more because with anorexia or any type of um, eating disorder, bulimia, you numb out and mm-hmm. um, because your brain isn't functioning correctly. And so because um, of lack of nutrition, because of lack of nutrition. And so I was able to block it out a little bit more and just keep on my path, even though we were so upset mm-hmm. about it. We were upset about both things. At this point, is this something you and Doug are having dialogue about? Is he obviously he's probably noticing your weight mm-hmm. changes, and is this something that he feels like okay, this is more than just a, a woman trying to lose weight? And are you guys having conversation about it, or what? What was that like in your marriage? Well, considering we had only been married for one year, yeah. we didn't really know how to communicate yeah. with these things. We really grieved alone, mm-hmm. separately. Mm-hmm. Doug was in seminary, and we and working at a church because he was in the ministry also. I don't know. It was just a really difficult and private time for us. Mm. Now I know we would have dealt with it totally different, but that's 24 years later. Right. You know, and there have been many bumps in the road and many joys in the road. He knew that I was getting worse, Mm -hmm. but he didn't also know how to confront me about that and to help me with that. He, Mm -hmm. I think, thought a lot of it was going to go back to normal when I recovered from the loss of the baby. So, and it just didn't rebound. Okay. So tell us kind of about that next season then. So you're a a year into marriage. You've had this tragic loss. Mm -hmm. Things are continuing to cycle out of control for you. So tell us what that next chunk of your life was like. Now that we'd experienced the excitement about getting pregnant Mm -hmm. and everything, we had always planned to wait three or four or five years to, you know, have children and um, get more established in our marriage and just have time together. Then once we got pregnant... Then we wanted to get pregnant again. Yes. And so the doctors told me because of my weight and because of the the miscarriage being so far along and the loss to wait a full year to wow. try again. And that meant abstinence for a year. And so we were newlyweds. So we were just like, my husband's jaw was on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> he was just like, are you kidding me? Wow. And um, so we obeyed. It was very difficult, but we obeyed. And then one year later, they said, we don't think you'll be able to get pregnant again because of nutrition level and hormone level, because Mm -hmm. you, of course, lose hormone with nutrition. And they said, but you can try again. We know y'all are really bent on this. And, but they advised us to be very cautious because of my weight. And again, not a lot was said about eating disorder okay. at that time. They so they're so doctors are kind of just saying you're really thin and yes. you're almost like scary thin, but they're mm-hmm. not even connecting it to eating disorder. No. Or like, this is a problem. No one's talking about getting you help or getting treatment. Nothing. Wow. Nothing. It, that's ironic to me. Yeah. It really is. Now looking back on it, it's literally for Doug and I baffling. Even though we were cautioned, they said, why don't you go ahead and try? We don't think this will happen, but we got pregnant with Shelby. <laughs> and um, we were so excited. I had 11 ultrasounds with her and sonograms because yeah. I was considered an at-risk. Mm-hmm. And um, she came on her due date. Oh, wow. And they couldn't believe it. And her at-guard score was a 10. We couldn't believe it. Was and her she weight was healthy? So and... Yes. she was. Her weight was healthy, but it literally depleted me. Um, my teeth, my, um, my bone structure, everything. It just really depleted me. After I had Shelby, I started to do better. It's like I got some hope. So yeah. that was really good. Being pregnant, what was that like? Was it something to where the, the disorder kind of took a backseat and you started focusing on, I want to eat and make this child healthy and you probably had memories of the the tragic loss mm-hmm. um and so were you able to to do more nutrition wise or was it just a, a miracle that she was healthy and, and you weren't eating like she, you should or 
it depended on how I felt like I looked that day. Mm. When you, excuse me, when you have an eating disorder, it wins. It okay. prevails. Or it did in my life. I should speak for myself. Even though I was scared and I didn't want to lose Shelby and I was excited when we passed the five month mark, mm. I was still most worried and just equally as worried, I should say, equally as worried about my weight. I taught middle school at the mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. and the kids were relentless about, you know, my weight and everything oh, because goodness. of that. And all I had was a bump. Somebody described me as looking like a Q-tip that swallowed a golf ball. And so, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I wanted her so bad. Mm. I wanted to be a mom so bad, but I wanted to be skinny so bad mm. that it truly was a miracle. Some days I would eat pretty good. And then some days I would go pretty much the whole day and maybe eat some crackers. Mm. Um, I didn't feel good, which was a good sign because those hormone levels were yeah. getting a little higher. But I just really didn't feel feel good or it didn't really affect drastically my eating, mm-hmm. even though I was pregnant. That's just how, how steeped in it I was. But you said after Shelby came, yes. you got a little better. You I did. had the kind of that mama bug and mm-hmm. saw that precious girl and you feel like it was your heart just kicking into gear of I want to protect this baby mm-hmm. I want to be here for her and what did that season look like well it was amazing actually Shelby came out with a personality <laughs> and so um energetic and I wanted to not miss anything I didn't want to miss the firsts yes. and I did eat better and I would eat when she ate mm-hmm. which was helpful I was able to nurse her for just a little bit. And so God really, he just took care of me because I feel like I was saying, yes, Lord, instead of no. I was just doing better. Mm-hmm. And the depression mm-hmm. wasn't heavy at all. The and hope factor was high. That's amazing, too. Yeah. With, you know, our statistics on postpartum depression, mm-hmm. obviously, I would think that, that that might be something that you would be have a propensity towards. So mm-hmm. that's such a praise that you had, you experienced none of that. Mm-hmm. And you just were opposite, filled with hope. Yes, absolutely. And wow. then a couple of years later, here came Miss Riley. <laughs> so, and Riley was born a little early. I ran out of um, amniotic fluid, and um, it was just right around her little face. And so they took her real quick. She was a little early, but her weight was still good. Great APGAR score. Mm-hmm. God just knew that me having girls was going to help me because they watched everything I did. Mm-hmm. And that that gave me a little bit of rallying time. So when would you say the eating disorder took center stage again in your mm-hmm. life? It's almost like it was today. Shelby was five. Riley was two and a half. I can remember being very overwhelmed in the ministry, having two small children, not being home a lot, feeling like they were fed more by the nursery workers than by their mom. Um, Just in the situation we were in, we would love the ministry. It was just the balance was almost impossible. And Doug was working up to 60, 70 hours a week with the teenagers. He was a youth minister, and I helped him a lot because my kids love to be up with the teenagers. But I remember one day leaving Shelby off at the schoolyard at the playground, I can remember her standing there. She had a lot of friends around her, but she wanted me. And she started crying when I left, and she really wanted me. And that triggered something in me that reminded me of when I was a little girl. And I kind of spiraled. And I know that seems weird in just one situation like that. But I'll never forget that that really triggered my depression. And just the mix of it made me want to be with her more. But we weren't in a situation where I could be more and more. And so I can remember asking people for help because I knew I was going down a long road for depression. And with Mm. depression, my depression, it really triggered not eating. Anyway, that's kind of how I remember it kind of starting again for me. 
And you said this time you reached out for people. You started asking for help. Mm -hmm. So do you feel like because maybe you were older and more mature, maybe because you had the girls this time you realized this not eating and this depression is a problem and I I need help. What did that help look like? I asked people who I knew would get me help. I hope. But um, I think people had seen me rally from a divorce at 18 and people had seen me rally from different things in my life. And I think they thought I would rebound from this also. And I would have thought the same thing, being outgoing and loving the Lord so much and just being at everything, just being so active. I think that everybody thought that that was just going to be a temporary situation. I got worse. And then um, I went to our pastor and his wife and told them that I was doing really bad. And that really helped a lot. So at that time, when the girls were a little, maybe a year older, six and three and a half, it helped. But the depression wasn't being handled by medication also. Mm -hmm. And I know that's a very controversial thing with a lot of Christians, medication. When I can take medication that's provided by a doctor who loves the Lord, Mm -hmm. I take it because Mm -hmm. it's the difference in living and not living for me. And I can remember needing help and them getting me help and then me getting better for a little while and then needing more help Mm -hmm. because my tendency to want to live was going down. Mm -hmm. Even though I had the girls, it snuck back up. Is this in like suicidal thoughts? Yes. Okay. This was really, I think, the result of low nutrition still. Low nutrition affects everything in your mind, your in your whole body. And I wasn't thinking as clearly. And so um, I really do feel like it's all intertwined and interconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, all the chemicals just weren't on. And um, my mom, I'd grown up with a mom with chemical imbalance. Um, she had a lot of depression. And so it wasn't foreign to me. But at the same time, I couldn't believe it was me. One evening, I did attempt suicide. And I knew this was my thought behind that. I want to be a mom. I want to be a, more than that. I want to be an amazing mom. I want to be an amazing wife. I want to be really helpful in the ministry and just be able to serve in any way, but I couldn't do it all. It was falling through my fingers Mm -hmm. and I could just feel that I was not meeting up to any standard Mm -hmm. that I had set for myself and some had been set by other people. And I thought, I want to live, but not like this. With the eating disorder and depression together, it was like a double whammy and I couldn't do both. So I ended up needing to go to a mental hospital. And Mm -hmm. that's probably one of the hardest parts of my story to talk about. Just because you don't hear of a lot of people doing that in the Christian realm. Mm -hmm. And it made me feel even worse about myself Mm -hmm. because I was like, I know Christians struggle. Sure, we all struggle. We all have our things. But to struggle like this and want to not want to take a life that God had given me, but be sick enough to take a life that God had given me was devastating. Well, I'm so thankful that you are sharing this part of your story because we both know that Christians are not immune to this kind of pain mm-hmm. and these types of behaviors. And like you said, that it's the illness taking mm-hmm. over, you know, their mind and their heart. And it's the illness lying to them and making them think this is better. You can know enough verses. You can, you can love your family. But mm-hmm. when you've got these lies that you're believing that are saying, you know, it's just going to be better for everybody if you, mm-hmm. if you just do this. So honestly, whether it's talked about very often or not in the Christian world, we need to. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just want how many people are suffering silently, you know, not reaching out to anyone. So I am, I'm grateful you're including this part of your story. And I, I can only imagine how devastating and hard that was for Doug and the girls. What did that next season?
season look like when you, you got treatment, you were inpatient. Um, do you feel like you made strides? And when you came home, was there a season that things were better or what was that like? When I got home, I feel like the medication that I was prescribed while in the hospital was so new. We kind of jumped the gun on some things and made some presuppositions mm-hmm. that we things were going to be rosy. Mom's home. Everybody's back together. Maybe I can pick up where I left off previous to the depression. The eating disorder was a little bit lower lying because I, I'd been focusing more on getting better from the depression. It's like when I got home, the eating disorder was waiting for me. I can remember sleeping a lot on the new medication mm-hmm. and missing a lot of meals and getting um, noticed for that. Not positively, mm-hmm. but noticed for it. And anything like that, somebody can get, and I know this sounds very trivial, somebody can get sick, have a surgery, or have a stomach virus or something and get positive attention for it. And that can skyrocket and kind of spiral into Mm -hmm. an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that that sounds very basic, but that can happen, Mm -hmm. especially if there are the genetics there to kind of let that explosion happen. What really happened was, is I started being a little bit of the poster child for women taking medication in the Christian realm. And so I spoke at some places about that, got excellent feedback, But on the inside, I was going, I'm still not ready to be doing this. And Mm. I didn't communicate that. So this went on for years then. And was the eating disorder just something that you were silently suffering? Everything looked fine on the outside, but daily you're having to have these battles with yourself about eating? Yes, absolutely. And even though I was still trying to eat some with the girls because they were so little um, and we kind of grazed throughout the day, there were pockets of time after I got home, that we could look back and say this was a victorious time. But underlying, we still hadn't taken care of the poison. Mm -hmm. It was still very much there. It was just kind of which one was hurting me the most. Was it the Mm. depression that season or was it the anorexia that season? It's just It was just a long time before I had peace because it just felt like the the enemy was pounding me with one or the other. Mm. And even though I was doing more, with the youth group and doing more with my kids and trying to be more of a present wife, it was still, we could feel the the undertow. We could feel it. And by this point in your marriage, you've been married longer. Mm-hmm. Um, is this something that you and Doug are having dialogue about now, or was mm-hmm. it you're each dealing with it separately? I would say that we were still very much dealing with it separately, mm-hmm. unfortunately. I think one of the hardest things in our marriage has been communication. We've gotten so much better at it Mm -hmm. at this point, but it has taken a lot of hard knocks for us to finally open up and say to each other, I'm really hurting. This is what's going on with me, Mm -hmm. and um, I need you to know about it. I feel like, and Doug would say this, and he has said this many times, that he was in denial. And I don't stereotype that with men. I just say that's more of our personalities, just mm-hmm. to need to be more talkative about something and for him to be more, it's going to go away. And I think that he really believed it was going to. Number one, I'm a Christian and God mm-hmm. is the healer. Number two, you know, I'm a fighter. Always have been and tend to stay that way. And so we didn't see it ramping up to a place, or he didn't, of a place where it was going to try to take my life eventually. So obviously, you're sitting here today talking with me, and this has been, you said before we started the interview, about a 30-year mm-hmm. journey for you. Mm-hmm. So it didn't go away in that season. It just simmered under the surface. So mm-hmm. hit the highlights of the next few years. What were some big things? What were some milestones? Was there anything that really just finally caused you guys to say, okay, this is serious? You know, mm-hmm. kind of what did that next chunk of time look like mm-hmm. in your journey? Unfortunately and fortunately, a big situation occurred. 
I got into self-harm because of some things that I had heard about and I thought, I'm still here, I still have eating disorder and I still have depression, I am a toxic person. Mm -hmm. And I began to get more and more out of the ministry because I did not need to be in the ministry. Not that a minister needs to be perfect, but I was doing harmful things. Mm -hmm. And you cannot be a role model and an example and a mentor when you're hurting yourself. That I knew the Lord would not have that for me at all. And so my weight began to drop more. I could tell that it was affecting Doug's uh, job performance, and I was feeling guilty about that. I was asking him to please not let me go to church because I felt like people were noticing more and more of my weight mm-hmm. and the depression, and I didn't want to feel paraded around. He didn't want that for me either, mm-hmm. but people didn't realize to the extent that I was going through it, I'm sure. I can look back and remember very vividly um, one Wednesday night after Doug had youth group, a group of people who love us very much confronted Doug and said, your your wife is dying. And Mm. um, we recognize this and we love her too much to let this happen. And I believe Doug wanted to be the provider. I, I believe his heart is gold. And I think that he knew deep down that that was happening and they asked us to leave. It was devastating, but they love us. And I really believe that helped save my life. At first, we did not feel that way. Right. We were scared to death. Doug has an MDiv that's 97 hours of a master's degree. What were we going to do? That was very difficult. It, it hurt us in so many ways. But now that we look back on it, and many for many years since then, mm-hmm. we've looked back on it as a, a time where he needed to be at home taking care of me. And so they took care of us for a, a quite some time so that I, we could get back on our feet a little. Wow. That was one of the biggest things. It, the hardest part was losing a church family that yeah. had helped raise our babies. Then us coasting for a little while, isolating as a family a lot, needing to move um, and be to ourselves a little bit more to see if we could get on our feet. Um, still, at the same time, not being introduced to any hospital stays mm. for my health, no treatment plan in line. Looking back on that, we should have begged for one, um, mm. but still nothing. And then um, I had a change of doctors because of insurance. And these doctors were totally different, and they said they were a lot more aggressive. I guess. Mm. And so they began to really give me a meal plan and get me on, you know, at home treatment as best they could. What amazes me is that, you know, you've been battling this for a decade at least, Mm -hmm. seeing doctors, been on medication. Mm -hmm. You know, the depression has been talked about. Your weight has been a constant source of conversation, even from your pregnancies. Mm -hmm. Yet, this is the first time Mm -hmm. that someone has actually put you on a meal plan, talked about the eating disorder side of it. Mm -hmm. That just really shocks me that there wasn't awareness. Do you feel like in today's culture, there's more awareness? Like, do you think that a a woman would slip through the cracks that that easily today? Or do you think that was just a different time? Or do you think it still just has everything to do with having the right people around you? I believe that it has to do with having the right people around you and the right doctors. We were so desperate at that point, even though insurance had changed, we just said, Lord, lead us to the right people. We had been with the same nutritionist for quite some time. I had consistently not eaten well, still no mention of treatment. And us not knowing that it was time for that, I thought, and I know this is a horrible thing to say, but I must really not be a good anorexic because no one is telling me that I need further help. So mm. I get to stay at home and not eat. It was feeding your it disease. It was feeding my disease. And wow. I do feel like even in the last 
I would say five to seven years, not much more than that. Things had become better, but not much further along than that, mm -hmm. in my opinion. So once you got the new the nutritionist, the new doctors, the new meal plan, I know you have had hospital stays and you've had some inpatient treatment. When was that in the timeline? Was that pretty immediate once you guys moved, mm -hmm. you started your life kind of over? Mm -hmm. Or was it still a little time of doing like check-ins with a doctor before they said, you know, you really need some inpatient treatment? It was still a little bit longer, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> when when I started becoming where I was out of breath a lot mm. and I needed to sleep more and more, I was becoming lethargic and apathetic even mm -hmm. more. Then my team said, we want you to go to a doctor that can do EKGs and different things. Mm -hmm. And they discovered that my heart was about the size of a baby's fist. Oh my goodness. And this was only three years ago. And so, yeah, they said oh uh, with that, they gave me the ultimatum. They said, you will need to go to treatment and will die. And once they started checking my organs and my everything internal, it showed a lot worse than even my external. I was wearing, um, you know, little heart monitors and different things around. And they were just like, if you don't go now, we can't even have you as a patient because of liability. Not only do we love you, but we, you're a liability at this wow. point. So that was when you had your first inpatient treatment then. Mm -hmm. Is that right? And that was about three years ago? Yes. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Okay. Shelby had just graduated from high school and Riley was going to be a sophomore in high school. We went to a doctor's appointment that was really just kind of like a Jesus meeting. Mm. <laughs> and Doug came with me and more and more he was realizing it's not that we lived two separate lives in the same household. I'd never want to paint that picture. I think we were scared to know reality. Mm. And I think also we knew that treatment at that point was going to be so expensive. How would we ever do it? Treatment's about $1,000 a day. Insurance was vital. We were living paycheck to paycheck. Mm -hmm. And so when we went to this meeting with a few of my doctors and they said that they couldn't treat me anymore, and then the intern, this doctor, was just like, this is what needs to happen. Doug had just gotten a job with the Salvation Army, and they had excellent insurance. Mm -hmm. God's timing is so amazing. And it just fell into place, really. They said, you have two weeks to get to inpatient treatment. And we took the girls, believe it or not, we went to New York because Shelby was about to go to college and Riley was about to start her sophomore year and we just wanted to be with them. I wanted to show them that I was trying before I even went in mm. just to give them a hope. I don't think I realized and I know I didn't because I was too sick to realize how much they really felt like I was going to die of mm. the disorder. Mm. And now we've talked about that and they were convinced that that's what I was going to die of. It had been a slow death. We went to New York and we told them about me needing to go in and Shelby handled it different than Riley. Shelby cried because she was so relieved. Riley didn't cry because she was so relieved. I had been, I don't want to say a negative burden, but my girls had been wearing this and this had been weighing on them. I just didn't know. I was just too sick to know. And it devastates me now. They yeah. don't want it to, but it devastates me. So I got to treatment and I'll never forget the day that we pulled up. I was hanging on to the door handle and Doug would unlock the door and I would lock it back. Oh. He would unlock the door and I would lock it back. And then this lady appeared at my window and she opened the door for me and I was sitting in the car begging Doug to not make me go. Mm. I had packed enough for two days thinking I wasn't going to stay. Um, she got me out of the car very quickly <laughs> and she got me in the front door wow. and she said, you're here so that you can live or you're going to make it. And mm. I was just bawling my head off. I couldn't believe that I had gotten sick enough to do this. Mm. I was frustrated with myself. I was angry with myself. Mm. Being a mom and having this many failures under my belt, I felt like I just was like, I got to give this a go. 
I walked through the doors of the hospital and Doug had to go. That was part of the rules. And there were a dozen red roses and he said, you can do this. He said, you can do this. Do it for yourself and do it for our family. I was in ICU for the next seven weeks. I was supposed to, my, my entire stay was supposed to be six weeks. But I didn't get out of ICU until I could hold food down. I had been eating almost nothing and buying almost nothing, a Diet Coke and maybe some dry cereal a day. And they gave me, you know, they started me slow. Mm-hmm. I didn't want them to give me a feeding tube. I said, can I try food? And they gave me the opportunity to do that. They weren't just looking to tube me. The first few times I ate, I got so sick because I wasn't used to digesting food. My organs had shut down. And so they started me on a liquid diet, and then we progressed into Mm. more and more food. And you were able to avoid the feeding tube altogether? I was. I was, which was a miracle in itself. I just wanted to see, with God's help, what I could manage. And treatment ended up being one of the hardest things I've ever gone through in my life, including the loss of our son, including Mm. so many things. Just the exposure therapy of needing to eat and do this thing I was scaredest about was Mm. almost more than I could do. But Mm. when I was sitting with other women that were doing the same thing, it was totally possible. And I, as a mom, I can also imagine just that picture of your girls in New York and their responses. Mm -hmm. And I, I would assume Moments like that were playing out in your head mm-hmm. on those hard times, mm-hmm. the days where you just felt like this isn't going to work, mm-hmm. I can't do this. I would imagine just that thought of them mm-hmm. kept you going. That's what sustained me with them and the Lord and just knowing that my husband believed in me and that I had so many people back home rooting for me. Every time I, almost every meal for the, at least the first few months that I was away, it turned into four and a half months of me needing to be away. Wow. The girls at my table, the cheerleaders at my table, my peers would say, Stacy, do this for the girls. And even though I was crying and I was so scared of gaining weight and of the food, I that helped me and I could take bites. And mm. at most meals, the volume was what got me. Mm. Not that I couldn't really taste a lot of food. I still can't taste a lot of food mm. unless it's really highly seasoned. Um, taste buds have kind of, you know, they've got to, they can reform. So it would just be looking that. at the plate and looking at how much you were supposed yes. to eat, and it would... And it grew and grew. They started at a small, small amount, and then it would grow and grow till my my tray was absolutely full of food. Mm. And I would need to eat that three times a day, then three snacks plus a dessert when I had come from eating nothing. And so, yeah, it was very intimidating, but the doctors were there with you, the therapists were there with you. Mm-hmm. The refeeding process is very delicate because it comes from the term of when people in concentration camps would mm. need to be refed after they had been starved. And a lot of them were dying because their hearts could not handle the refeeding because they would come out and they would be reintroduced to food and they would just eat so much food. Yes. So that's where we get the term refeeding. Wow. So it's a very scientific thing. Mm. You can't just dive in. Right. <laughs> and your body glad. literally can't handle it. Right. So the girls at your table, you're cheerleaders, were Mm -hmm. they struggling with the same issues that you were? Were they there because of eating disorders or were they going through different things? Eating disorders, Mm -hmm. um, bulimics, and also anorexics. Some had been both, so it was a mix. But you guys all understood each other Mm -hmm. because you had, you know, you had that common thread and that common struggle and you were all there to get help. Definitely. So you could cheer each other on. Some more than others. I mean, there were girls there that would put food in their shoes I learned a lot while I was there about ways that that I could feed my eating disorder, for lack of a better word. Mm. I learned tricks. So the prayers that people had for me 
to stay on the path that God had for me where he so that was you said three years ago Mm -hmm. and you were in four and a half months Mm -hmm. um would you say it was a victorious time and you were a different person Mm -hmm. than when you went through those doors definitely I felt scared to come home because I didn't know what people were going to say I gained a lot I say nutrition gained a lot of nutrition eating disorders are very competitive so I don't want to say how much I gained or my lowest weight because that would trigger me but I gain a significant amount in order to be able to to live and sustain it when I got home and knowing that when I got home I would probably fluctuate a little bit. I kind of felt like I could conquer the world there for a little while but I was really scared to go back to our social situations, Mm. to church, all those things because I had been kind of gaunt before Mm. and now I had some life to me. But I found that people didn't know what to say to me, but they were really glad that I was alive and that meant the world to me. Well, I know that there's been so many seasons and so many ups and downs, but I love that the theme through this has been God's intervention. Mm -hmm. So many times in your story as I'm listening to it, you know, whether it was a conversation with the people that that you guys were working for with the church, whether it was the change of insurance, and then Mm -hmm. just the voices of people in your treatment, the Lord has clearly had his hand on your story Mm -hmm. and has had his hand on your life. And he's made it so clear that he wants you here, that he's got a job for you, (laughs) that, that he's not finished with you. I love the way that you're using this very difficult story to bring hope and healing to other women. I'd love to hear a little bit about just what helped you in that season. I asked you before you came today to talk about, you know, what were some of the things that helped you through your recovery? And you've mentioned a little bit about the community of women. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'd love to hear so that we can, as women, be encouraged that when we know someone who's going through something, whether it's the things you've struggled with or something completely different, like how can we encourage others? And I'd love to learn a little bit of that from you and what encouraged you? What helped you? Sure. One of the biggest things was my treatment team. And then also knowing the difference in a lot of people relapsing and staying on is the support team that they come home to. And my girls had come to see me a few times when I'd been there, actually quite a few times. And they'd seen the sickness. And so their prayer lives changed. I was in the women's part of the every group. And there were only like 12 to 15 of us because they only accept a certain number because Mm -hmm. it is ICU. And then you progress to a different level and then a different level where you're released to go home. But I don't know what I would have done without the incentive of knowing I had two girls at home Mm -hmm. for their mom. I do not want to leave a legacy of, of death. For my children, it's suicide, slow suicide, slow death. I wanted Mm -hmm. to leave one of victory and that we don't give up. That was so important to me. And then also knowing that my biggest advocate had become my husband. His strength and taking care of the girls and making sure their needs were met. And knowing that I needed the highest level of care at that point was huge for me. Some people were getting divorced while they were gone. Um, some people were just knowing they weren't going to go home to any support. And those are the people, not always, but sometimes that have relapsed. And so I have a big reason to really make sure that I was fighting as hard as I could mm-hmm. and because I wanted to come home better than when I left. I would say that God's grace and, and love in my life Mm-hmm. I have been so hard on myself, obviously, from the eating disorder to self-harm when the eating disorder and depression weren't enough to make sure that I kept myself in my place by cutting. I just haven't known a lot about grace, and I could see grace in other people's lives. 
but not in mine. I would think, why would God have that grace on me when I've done all these things? And there are people who don't know him who have done less. It just didn't make sense to me. And I'm so glad that it doesn't because his grace is so is so deep that it's helped me to see, Stacy, you can't measure up to what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you abundantly more than you could ever imagine. And that to me sustained me with mm. the girls and Doug. But if I had only had him, and while I was in treatment, I got to share that grace. And I got to share that mercy with people, which was huge because you're at a very desperate point when you're in treatment that I needed to know that it was for me also. Mm -hmm. And I needed to finally accept that grace and mercy that he had had. Since you've been through so many different things and you've come to the other side and you're at a place now that you're really using your story. God is using your story. And instead of seeing your story as a liability in your life, as an outsider, I see you using this story for the benefit of God's glory, not being embarrassed or ashamed about where you've been, but really giving glory to God for where he's brought you. So I would love for you to share with us, you know, what would you tell another woman? If, if there was a woman sitting in this room right now who's struggling with eating disorder, with depression, with self-harm, any of those mental battles that seek to take us out. Uh, what would you tell that woman today? I would say that beyond a shadow of a doubt, if you don't have the Lord, He is hope. He represents hope. So to ask Him for a personal relationship, so that that way you can know the hope that surpasses all devastation. I would also say that if you have a relationship with God, that some of my best days have been in the valley. That's mm. the teachable place. Mountaintops are awesome, and we have to have those experiences and moments and times and seasons. But when I have been in the valley, that's when I have felt like the Lord is really holding on to me and disciplining me. Love is demonstrated by discipline. Sometimes I've wanted to be disciplined because I've wanted to feel that form of love. Mm -hmm. And it hasn't always happened in the world. And when I was growing up, I wanted to feel like I was being held on to real mm -hmm. tight. And in the valley, that's where I feel that. Mm -hmm. I would say that the valley is not a horrible place. The other thing is that recovery takes courage. And sometimes you have to fake the courage, but it's worth it. I think that God comes in and says, you know what? I've got you. So if you rely on me, we'll have this courage together and I'm going to provide what you need to get through it. And then sometimes when you are so exhausted, there have been times, especially in the seasons where I've done the self-harm, where I've sat in the bathroom floor, literally holding my tool, just going, I don't want to do this, but I feel like this is what I deserve. Can you rescue me from this? And just mm. not having any wisdom and not having any Bible verse and the tip of my tongue and just saying, Jesus. And it's that time that I can feel like he just ushers in his angels and just says, you don't need to do this. I've got you. I never left you. So let me rescue you right now and put it down and let's walk away. And then he hasn't left me there. He has started to heal me from that. So that's mm -hmm. been one of my most difficult things is the self-harm. All of it feels difficult, but of the things to talk about, the self-harming and then the, the suicide attempt are the two most devastating. Mm -hmm. Any neurological disease that you have, I don't want to be an advocate for medication, but if you feel like that the Lord has given you a way to be able to live and function through medication and through his word, I take my medicine. Mm -hmm. It means I get to stay home with my kids. It means I get to be married. It means I get to be alive. Yeah. So. 
absolutely. Such good words of hope. I, I could talk to you all day. This has just been so encouraging. I would ask one thing more as a mom of daughters, really as a mom in general, mm-hmm. is there anything you could tell us just as we're raising girls in such a, a crazy culture of there's so much emphasis put on the physical. Mm-hmm. And I know you mentioned genetics plays a part. You mm-hmm. mentioned there are certain neurological pathways. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I also think that just for all of us raising kids, there's probably things that we could be doing that could positively point our kids in the right direction as far as what their outside looks like and this climate. Mm -hmm. There's so much more to us than the physical, and they're not going to hear that in the world. All they're going to hear is the physical and that there's very little to offer beyond that. And if you have the physical, you've got it made. What I've tried to do with my girls is just to really emphasize that they have so much to offer Mm -hmm. that is about what the Lord is doing in their life. Encouraging them and saying, you know what, you are a really hospitable person Mm -hmm. or you are a very giving person or you have a lot of mercy that Mm -hmm. you give to people. And saying things like that instead of saying how their outer beauty is the only thing that they have to offer. Sure, we compliment the exterior. Yeah, <laughs> there's a balance there. I think if we never did, then they they'd wonder, if, are my pretty? Complex. Right, yeah. right. And them hearing that at home mm-hmm. and them hearing you are beautiful on the inside and out at home gives them a confidence. So when they walk out the door, they can say, you know what? I'm thankful that, you know, that I have lovely hair mm-hmm. or that, you know, I have beautiful long legs, mm-hmm. but there is so much more to me than that. And I'm going to offer that to people when I go out and not take that as the only thing I have. It's just such a balance. And goodness, we're, we're both in our 40s and we know mm-hmm. the body changes mm-hmm. the older we get, no matter what we do. And if, if that's all we're telling our kids, then my goodness, we're just setting them up to doubt themselves as their, as their bodies change, as mm-hmm. their gain weight, lose weight, their hair, you know, changes, their complexion changes. Mm -hmm. And if that's what they think their value is, that's fleeting. It really is. So it it is a delicate dance because you do want to compliment your kids. You want to, especially daughters, you want Mm -hmm. them to feel pretty and you don't want them just looking for boys outside of the house to to tell them, Mm -hmm. you know, how they look. And so I, we've done the same, especially with our girls. I don't know if our son cares, (laughs) but you know, we have really tried to fill that love tank to let them know, yes, we think you're beautiful. God made you beautiful. And these are some qualities that we think are really lovely about you. But Mm -hmm. the bigger thing to celebrate is what he's done in who he's made you, your personality, your gifts, your, Mm -hmm. like you were mentioning, the spiritual gifts of being hospitable, having a merciful heart, really trying to balance that as a mom. and, And just to think about have I been talking more or focusing more on the outside or, you know, are we really bringing all of the great qualities to light? Yes. I can't say enough about the more you fill that love tank at home, mm-hmm. the less they are desperate to find it outside of the home. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. is huge. Y'all, it sounds like y'all are doing awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, my goodness, as you know, parenting is definitely the biggest it's challenge. It's touch and go, isn't it? <laughs> it is. I mean, it depends on the day for sure, yeah. but I appreciate that encouragement. Um, Well, as we wrap up here, I just could not help but thinking just throughout your story and your journey about um, 2 Corinthians 12. I've been kind of in 2 Corinthians for the past few weeks, just really coming through it. And so many different things that you said pointed me to this passage. But I was thinking about in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, where Paul's talking about, you know, he has this thorn in his flesh and Mm -hmm. none of us know what that thorn was which I think is a blessing I do too. because then we can all identify. We can assume mm-hmm. it's the thorn that we struggle with, you sure. know, 
but it says in scripture that he asked God three times to take it away mm-hmm. and the, the thorn remained. And then Jesus says to him, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in your weakness. And so then Paul responds, well, therefore I will boast more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside on me. So I take pleasure in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulties for the sake of Christ, because when I am weak, then I am strong. And I, I just... It. Gosh, I love that. I see that all over your story, Stacey. I see you not delighting in your weakness as far as being proud, Mm -hmm. but saying, you know, I'm not going to be embarrassed about the places I've been because when I share my story with women, God's power is made known and Mm -hmm. evidence of God's grace is all over your story. And I thank you so much for sharing with us today. Absolutely. We've talked about some serious and some heavy things, but I do like to end on on a fun note. So sure. I, since this is the uniquely beautiful stories podcast, we've talked, we've heard about your uniquely beautiful <laughs> story. I'd love to just hear what are some things that are making your life more beautiful right now, and it could be anything from something silly like a Starbucks drink to something really deep and serious like a certain passage of scripture. Sure. But what's making your well, life beautiful right now? Not being at the end of this, still being in on the journey. I can't look back and say five years ago. I did this, this, and this. It's it's meeting him every day in my scripture. Mm-hmm. Years I refer to all the time because we don't know what Paul's was, but he's still delighted in the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to wait until the, the, this is over, the outcome, because I may never fully be over this. Mm-hmm. I could stay in the throes of it for a long time, um, or longer, <laughs> I should say, but it keeps me so close to the Lord. Mm-hmm. I'm a very independent gal. Mm-hmm. And, um, and when I... Am with the Lord in this and meeting Him for every bite that I take. There's mm. joy because of what He provides. And I guess one of the main things I would say is my verse brings me a lot of joy. Mm. I will not die but live and proclaim what the Lord has done. And that comes from Psalms 118, 17. And I'm going to proclaim it even on the hard days, on the days mm. that I don't fight as well. Some days I don't fight at all. I would also say that getting to speak and share and write really provide me a lot of hope because mm. I. There have been times when I've been talking to the Lord and he's been talking to me and I'm, it's almost like a child when you say, what am I going to do with you? <laughs> Sometimes the Lord, I always say, what are you going to do with me? <laughs> what, what are you going to do? Because, because the struggle is still sort of real, but he consistently gives me that answer through when I get to, when I get to share. I absolutely love getting to be with the girls and shop with them <laughs> and take them to fun restaurants and mm go to Chicago with them or go to New York or just be at our home lying Mm. on the carpet and just saying, how's God in your life right now? How are you inviting him in? What are y'all doing? And then of course, the empty nest syndrome that we're going through. We've been so busy, thankfully, (laughs) but Doug and I getting to be together, it makes me realize that I did marry the man that God has for me Mm. as if that he hasn't reiterated that over (laughs) and over in my life. And then finally, the most profound one would be going to Target with a Diet Coke in my hand <laughs> and a bunch of my friends with me. Um, Amen. Yes, Target is a holy place. It really is. <laughs> and um, so that would be one of my favorite things, too. Oh, so I love it. I it's just all it. over the board for me. <laughs> hey, as it should be. You know, none of us should take ourselves too seriously or um, too lightly. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's great. It is good to laugh after a lot of years of, of sadness and crying and stuff. Sometimes I hear myself laugh and I'll go, well, that's my laugh. 
Oh, <laughs> so, I love that. Well, again, thank you, Stacey, for sharing your story with us. Thank you. Um, and I do want to remind our listeners, you've got a book out, mm-hmm. and we can find that book at Amazon.com. I'm going to put a link to that in the notes from this show. We can also find it at Barnes & Noble here in Oklahoma City. And um, are you in um, any other bookstores around here? Yes, I'm at Full Circle Bookstore. That's right. Right there at 50 Penn Place, um, right across from Penn Square Mall. And um, very secular bookstore, so we were real excited when we got to actually have the hard copy in there. Absolutely. That's so, a huge And then at our church bookstore. That's right. So at Council so, Road Baptist, you can also find it at our books, etc. in the four-year at church. Well, thanks again, Stacy, And thank you, listeners, for spending yes. your time with us. And we hope that you will go out and live your uniquely beautiful story well. Thank you for listening to Uniquely Beautiful Stories with Heather McInear. Share this podcast with a friend and subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Now go live your own story.